Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, we'll, uh, we'll just chat for a few minutes because I don't know exactly when everybody kind of comes in and officially gets started or who all to expect. So um, talk to me for a little bit. How many of y'all have, I mean, you guys have been doing this for a number of weeks now, yeah? And I imagine most of y'all have been tracking along for the most part with, with the whole thing. You guys said you just come the last couple times. Okay, just joining in. Very cool. Um, so we're in chapters 11 and 12 of Acts today, which will be fun to cover together. And, um, you know, when, when you deal with a big chunk of scripture like that, of course, we're not going to dig down into all of the weeds. Um, and so I'll kind of lay out what my goal is with, with, a, with a time like that. But I'd love to hear what have been some of the things that have stood out to you in studying Acts together with Jim. And maybe if I could ask the question in, in two ways. Have you learned anything that you didn't really know before or hadn't seen before? Or have you been reminded of something that you knew before, but studying Acts together has been a helpful way to recall that truth or idea or conviction or practice or whatever? So what have you learned? What has stood out to you about your study of Acts so far? How many of you are introverts? I'm, just, I'm curious. How many of you are extroverts? Okay, so like two of you might talk first. So, hey guys. I'll wait you out though, just FYI. I'm super comfortable with silence, so, you know, well, for me, take your time. Also, for me, um, I kind of put myself back to the, if I was there then, you know. Yes. And, and I'm just a regular dude. Yep. Know. I follow and believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. He's radical, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's crucified. He's gone. Now we've got this Holy Spirit that I don't understand. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm yeah. thinking everything's all lost. Yes. They had to. Yes. They, yes. It's over with. You mm-hmm. know? So I believed in something that was probably crazy. But yeah. I knew it was real because I witnessed the few miracles. I witnessed Jesus, you know. Yep. Or his just around. And all of a sudden, he'd gone. Um, but the Holy Spirit here, I don't know what that is, mm-hmm. trying to get all that and still go out and do what Jesus called me to do is go out and make disciples and be fishermen and men. Right. And having all those things coming again, because the world was going on. Oh, I know. It was just like normal. It was like today. Just like normal. Just cruising yeah. along. So how easy that would have been to fall. Well, you know, this is back to, to fall back in my old patterns. Absolutely. So really, the cost of being a true disciple of Jesus Christ, what's that going to cost me? Yes. Even today. Yes. Uh, well, it's a big cost. It is. And I, I kind of think that we're entering a cultural situation that helps us understand a little bit better what it would have been like back then. And what I mean is, you know, most of us have lived in, in, in an America and in a Western world where Christian values were supported, even if only, only in name, or at least that, you know, sort of, there was a, there was a shared value structure, a shared understanding of reality. Resistance. Not much resistance. It was kind of socially advantageous to at least pose, you know, as a believer. Whereas that's kind of going away, you know, and I see this especially in the college students who've shown up in a world where they've had to battle for their faith every step of the way. And it just feels very strange to be a person who, who believes in and worships God and whatnot. So I, I think, yeah, at some level, what you're talking about, how it just would have been so easy to say, well, that was fun while it lasted. Yeah. 
Yeah. I guess we'll go back to what it was before. We can feel that a little bit. How many of you guys have seen The Chosen? Do you get, have any of you guys watched the show? So I had not seen it. I'm really skeptical of Christian TV, generally speaking. And uh, we're watching it as a small group right now. And part, my favorite part of it is when you see these well-developed, well-acted characters, it really helps you process what it would have felt like or may have felt like. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. Good, good. Any others? Just things that you've learned so far? Any, I'd love to hear from maybe one or two more. What has stood out to you in, in your study of Acts? Are you guys a talkative crew, by the way, or is it going to be like pulling teeth to get you to talk to me? All right, let's practice a little bit. Everybody, I'm going to count to three. I want you to say your middle name out loud. And if I don't see your mouth moving, I promise I will embarrass you. I will come to you and we'll have a a long one-on-one conversation in front of everybody. So you don't have to make noise. I won't know, but your mouth needs to move. So on three, say your middle name. And if you don't know your middle name or you don't have a middle name, just say Dennis Rodman, okay? On three. One, two, three. Okay, well done. Now, this one's a little bit trickier. I want you to think about your favorite character. Um, excuse me, favorite color, not favorite character. That's way too long. Favorite color, all right? So on three, and if you don't have a favorite color, say chartreuse. On three, I want to hear your favorite color. So one, two, three. Blue. Okay, a lot of blues. And then lastly, let's go with cucumber, all right? Let's just all say the word cucumber, okay? So on three, we're going to say cucumber. One, two, three. Cucumber. cucumber. Very good. Now, last time. It's a little complicated, y'all. So what I want you to do when I count to three is I want you to say your middle name, your favorite color, and cucumber. Now remember, if you don't have a middle name and you don't have a favorite color, you're going to say Dennis Rodman, Chartreuse, Cucumber, okay? If you do have a middle name or a favorite color, just go with yours. Are we ready? One, two, three. All right. Here's the thing. You can't say anything dumber than what you just said. So we have officially broken that ice. Um, all right, uh, I'm about to call on somebody, but I, I don't want to. One more thing you've learned. Somebody who's been part of this class. One more thing that you've benefited or enjoyed or stood out to you. Yes, sir. Uh, I have never thought about the day of Pentecost and the speaking of tongues being the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Oh, isn't that amazing? I love that connection. Yeah. Yeah, that, the, that you know, what went wrong with the world is being undone. That's beautiful. Yeah, okay. All right, so um, as we approach chapters 11 and 12, I'd like for you to talk at your tables for just, I'm going to give you like a minute and a half, nothing, nothing super long. But what I want you to think about are um, two kind of big moments in your life and just try to articulate something you learned from them. So it could be, you know, the birth of a child, it could be the death of a loved one, it could be a war, it could be a transitional season. But if you were to kind of plot out the timeline of your life, there'd be certain marks, you know what I'm saying? And they represent key moments in your story. And so what I want you to do, again, is amongst yourselves at a table, think about a big moment in your life and something that you learned from it. So everybody share with each other. I'm going to give you two minutes, and then I'll recapture our attention together.
All right, let me have your attention. Uh, I would love to actually hear some of what you just shared, but I always run out of time on these Sunday morning things, so I'm not going to uh, make you share out loud. But it's kind of like, here's what you just did. You know, we'll have a, here's our timeline of our life, and currently at this moment anyway, yep, everybody's still alive, so our lives are ongoing. And you have these various, you know, tick marks, and some of them are tragic, some of them are positive. If I were doing my timeline, you know, this, I don't mean to take it, Super negative, but the day my biological father left, huge moment for me. Um, the day I was baptized, the day I was called to ministry, when my mother remarried, when I married my wife, when we had our children, we suffered miscarriages. I can actually think of moments that were big for me just because of an experience of God I may have had or a time I may have heard from him. Anyway, we kind of have these big moments. How many of you were able to think about a key moment in your life and something that you learned from it? However, if you, well, the interesting thing about timelines is that, generally speaking, most of the timeline is not marked by a big moment, you know? And most, most, of, our, like most of our seconds or our minutes are in between what we would think of as the big turning points in our story. And I want to point that out because chapters 11 and 12 of the book of Acts are kind of in between. Acts has some really big moments. And in chapter 10, you had a really big moment. Y'all remember what happened in chapter 10? Peter's up praying on top of the house. He gets this vision of a sheet with all the animals, kill and eat. Peter's like, oh no, Lord, I'm not doing it. And then again, the voice is like, kill and eat. Peter thinks he's being tested. He's like, last time I failed. I'm not failing this time, you know. And so three times, no, 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 Lord. I shall never eat an unclean thing. And then finally, he's like, oh, okay. Actually, this is the Lord speaking to me. And of course, the vision is not primarily about food. It's about people. Because at the same time, the time of prayer, Cornelius, the Gentile, is praying up in Caesarea Philippi. And you guys know the story, right? First Gentile convert. Huge moment. I don't know if any of you have Jewish ancestry, but if you do, you'd be the only one as part of the covenant family in the room. The rest of us would be on the outside looking in until Acts 10. Acts 10, huge. Acts 13, huge. Because in Acts 13, you have the Holy Spirit setting apart Barnabas and Saul who would become Paul, actually on this mission is when he starts to be referred to as Paul, setting them aside for a missionary journey, which is the first of many of the Apostle Paul. And it, it actually is where we see the gospel finally going out to the ends of the earth, going out to the ends of the world. And so, big moment, 11 and 12 in between. Now, we're not going to, we, we could do this profitably, it would actually be quite worthwhile. You might think about having this conversation later, if you live with whoever you're sitting with. What have you learned from the in-between seasons? Because that's a valuable question too. And we're looking right now at an in-between season, which is really about confirmation of what God's done, preparation for what God's doing, and how it interfaces with the world. You might think of the two halves of this text as God saying yes and God saying no. And uh, maybe we'll come back around to that if we have some time at the end. 
All right, we're going to break this text down uh, once again, looking in s- at some of the details, though not all of them. The way I tend to approach this is my goal is to say enough about this text that you know more than when you came in, but primarily so that when you go back to the Word later on, you have a pretty decent framework to learn even more in your time of study. I try to have a realistic goal about what can happen in an hour such as this one. And so to that end, generally speaking, I'm going to do most of the talking, but I don't want to do all of the talking. And so I'm going to teach through some of the details, and I want you to feel free at any point to raise your hand and say, what about this? What about this? And at various points, I'll pause and try to create some time for dialogue in that regard. Um, So chapter 11 and uh, chapter 12. Chapter 11, we're going to cover under the idea of redefining the boundaries, as in redefining the boundaries of the family of faith. Now that happened in 10, but really remember what's happening in chapter 11 is confirmation of what happened in chapter 10 with the first Gentiles being included in the family of faith. Hard to overestimate how radical of a switch that was. Now, to be clear, it wasn't just that Cornelius was a Gentile and now he's a member of God's family. It was that he became a member of God's family without becoming a Jew. He did not get circumcised. He did not submit himself to the Torah. All he did was put his faith in Jesus. That's a pretty radical shift. Now, did you guys cover the first part of chapter 11 last week? Is that ringing a bell a little bit? I think Jim told me to pick up an 1119. So I'm going to real quickly kind of resurvey what happens in the first part of 11. Let's read the text together. And um, again, because I believe you guys covered this, we're, going to, we're only going to hit the big picture here. What I want you to notice about the first 18 verses of chapter 11 is that it's about confirming um, what happened in, uh, in, um, in Caesarea Philippi with, um, with Peter and Cornelius and the Gentiles coming in. And so first of all, you have Peter being questioned and criticized because the people are like, I'm not sure if this is okay. And then you have his explanation and defense. It says, the apostles and the believers, I'm reading 11.1, throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. That's the big news. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, hopefully you understand something of why that would have been a big issue. We all have our sort of boundaries. We have our rules and restrictions. We have our places where we don't go and people who we don't talk to. And in the, in the Israelite culture, these purity regulations, these boundaries, they weren't just about safety. I remember when I was growing up, a lot of my friends weren't allowed, they're, they're like, mamas wouldn't allow them to come to my house because we lived on the wrong side of town. It was not just about safety for them, though. It was about protecting God's holiness. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're not supposed to be going there. And, um, and he did, though. So he actually explained, starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying. You guys, do you guys know about Joppa? Oh, there's so much interesting stuff in here. Joppa was the first century version of the city that uh, Jonah fled to when he was running away from God's call because he didn't want the Ninevites to hear about the, the goodness of God. So Joppa is a port city where, where Nineveh fled. Same city, now you have Simon, son of Jonah, who hears the call of God and goes the opposite direction of Jonah. Actually extends the grace of God to those who were previously outsiders. So the city of Joppa praying in a trance, I saw a vision, saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. She's telling the story. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice came to me a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. 
I write then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six, I want you to circle that in your Bible if you don't mind writing in your Bible. These six brothers also went with me. Why might that matter? How many people went? Huh? If Peter says, these six brothers went with me, how many people went? Seven. That's a complete number. That's usually not an accident in Scripture. I think this is Luke's, Peter's way of telling the story and Luke's way of reporting it that says, look, this is confirmation. You have a full panel showing in very Jewish terms that this is actually what God had intended to do. We entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appeared in his house, said, send for Joppa to Simon, who's called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Um, man, this may be confusing, and so if it is, you can just forget about it and we can move on. But I want to suggest to you that the six plus one that Peter lays out quite clearly is matched by a much more subtle six plus one question mark in the text. Here's what I mean. You have um, multiple times where the movement of God's spirit or an angel is mentioned in Peter's retelling of the story. The spirit spoke to Peter in a vision. vision. The spirit told Peter to go with them. The angel spoke to Cornelius in a vision. The spirit came on them just like he did on us at Pentecost. Jesus said this would happen. These, uh, actually, I don't think it's about the six guys. John the Baptist told us that the Spirit was going to do this. How many is that? Six. And then the question is, I think, to those who are listening, will you be the seventh group of witnesses that confirms what God has done? That's exactly what happens. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so the point here is, what God has been doing the people are catching up with. I want to make sure that sinks in. God has run ahead, and the people are catching up. Sometimes God runs ahead of us, and then there's a season where God allows us to catch up together. That's some of what happens in the in-between times. We have a little bit of space to say, what has God been doing? How can we understand this and step in? That's what's taking place there in Antioch, or there in Jerusalem. Actually, it's important that it's in Jerusalem because the next phase of this is in Antioch. Let's read 11, 19 through 30, and then we'll talk through what we see here. This is the the text proper that we're going to be um, uh, studying together today. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to give help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts by the, to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Okay, decent bit going on here. Uh, let's break it down like this. The gospel goes to Antioch. Barnabas is sent to confirm. The people are labeled Christians, and the church remains one. We'll come back through all of these things, I promise. So, all is well in Jerusalem. That's the first half of chapter 11. That's great. It is good for one church to be unified. Am I right? And I won't ask for stories, but I would imagine some of you have been a part of individual church bodies that were not unified. This is not a good thing. This is is a difficult thing to work through. It is good for an individual church to be unified. But it's a whole other thing for the church to be unified between not just one congregation, but across congregations all of the congregations in a city or all of the congregations in a region. And what you have here is, the question is, is the unity that we see at the church in Jerusalem going to extend outward to the church as a whole? Antioch is becoming the other kind of main center of early Christianity. So I'm not a particularly good cartographer um, or artist, but generally speaking, um, you know, here's, you've got the ancient world. So here, this is going to be the Italy boot, you know, and then you've got, this is Greece, And you've got Turkey, and then down here, and then that's Africa. So this is the Mediterranean Sea in very ugly form. Fair enough? Okay. This is Palestine. So this would be Jerusalem right here. This is where all of it happens. Of course, you know you have the the bodies of water, the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea. Uh, There's Jerusalem. Antioch is actually kind of right up here roughly speaking. It's in Syria. There were two Antiochs in the ancient world. And you might get confused when you get to chapter uh, 13 and 14 of Acts because Paul goes to Pisidian Antioch. That Antioch is actually over here. It's a city in ruins today. Um, And this one is actually still a current modern city. I wouldn't want to go there today. I've actually been there. It's interesting. It's a pretty beautiful city. But you guys are aware of the tension happening in Syria right now. Syria has often been a place of conflict and tension because it's a crossroads. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is how you get over into Asia proper. And in the ancient world, this, what we call Turkey, they called Asia Minor. And a lot of the New Testament is happening around in here. Ephesus is over here. Colossae is over here. Um, you know, once you get across the water to get to like Philippi and Corinth and Athens are down here and whatnot. But that's kind of the ancient world. So that's where we're, we're headed up north. And, um, and so we have to kind of figure out, are these two churches going to be one? The gospel goes up there. Um, actually, it's kind of interesting because it... Um, let me come back around to this. Let me just point out the facts first. So the gospel goes up there. It's not ta- who's it taken by? Is it, is it taken by the apostle? What did you say? That's Apollo, uh, Barnabas. Not yet. Who initially takes the gospel up there? What does it say? You guys take a look at your text. Who took the gospel to the Gentiles at first? So it happened, it happened as a result of Stephen's 
uh, martyrdom. But Stephen's dead, so he's not the one who himself took it up there. Who took it up there? What are their names? Sorry, it's a, trick. it's a little bit of a trick question. I'm so sorry, especially when I say what are their names. It's just the scattered brethren. It's just the people, man. Yeah. It's not apostles. It's not deacons. It's just people. They, we don't even know their names. I think that's part of the point. We'll come back to that in the end. So these unnamed evangelists, they go and they, they preach the, the... Well, they preach the Lord. What does it say? The content of their message is what? It says they are talking about the gospel of the Lord. The good news about the Lord Jesus. That too is worth coming back to. So they're preaching the gospel... And they're not like authorized leaders. Jesus hasn't specifically delegated them as apostles. The apostles don't seem to have specifically delegated them as as deacons or as servants or as ministers. These are just people taking the gospel up there. And they're taking it up to a place where there's a little bit of a checkered history of Jew-Gentile relations. That's what I mean by Syria and Antioch specifically has always had a little bit of a conflict. And so you're going into this new place and you have to wonder, like, is this okay? And so the church sends someone to figure out, is this okay? Who do they send? You do have a name here. Who do they send up there to check on these things? Barnabas. What's Barnabas? I mean, he's great. Is Barnabas an apostle? No. Why am I drawing attention to all of this? Because part of what I want you to see here is that God is showing us through the way Luke tells the story that, y'all, it's a done deal. It's settled that Gentiles can become believers in Jesus. Like, there's no going back to the time where there are additional rules for you to have to become a follower of Jesus. An apostle doesn't need to take this message. Anybody can take this message. And an apostle isn't even needed to confirm it because it's already been confirmed. Now the confirmation is essentially just that, confirmation, that indeed this is a good thing actually happening. So, whenever the gospel first went to Samaria, back in chapter 8, Philip took it, Peter and John had to come as apostles and confirm. Now, all you need is this encouraging guy, Barnabas. So, notice that as we proceed throughout the story, the confidence that the church has in the gospel is strengthened. And the confidence we can have that we're invited to belong to Jesus should be strengthened along with it. So, Barnabas is sent to confirm what he sees as evidence of God's grace, and the result is unity. The result is unity between the two churches in Jerusalem and in Antioch. And then you just see Barnabas doing Barnabas things. His name literally means son of encouragement because that's the kind of guy he was. And so what did he do? Well, he went and found Saul, who by this point is just back home. We don't even know anything that he's doing. And he brings him to Antioch and they work together for a little while. And the last detail that's mentioned here that we probably ought to draw our attention to is that this is the place where the people were first called Christians. This word Christians, I think, is designated by this group as a name for themselves. Some people think that the the culture around them gave them this name to mock them, ooh, little Christs. I don't really think so. I actually think they, in order to be like a legitimate group that wasn't illegal, needed to go register themselves with the leaders of the city of Antioch. And in doing so, they needed to pick a name. And they did. They called themselves Cristiano, Christians. This is where the disciples were first called Christians. And the church remains one. Okay, there's a couple of things I want to draw out. So just points of interest and application for us. Uh, Number one is I want you to notice that you don't have to be someone special to take the gospel to those who've never heard it. 
Our brother here, what did he say? He said, I'm just an average guy. I'm just an everyday guy. Okay? That's exactly the kind of people we see moving in the book of Acts. Sometimes people think, well, I haven't experienced a call to ministry, so I'm not supposed to do ministry. Everybody say, nah. That's not a biblical... Sometimes people experience a call to do ministry as a vocation or to do specific... I just feel called right now to reach out to my neighbors. I just feel called right now to express some love to these people in need. Sometimes that's how the Lord works with us. Other times, there's no specific call. You just see a good thing and you do it. Another thing that I think is worth pointing out is sometimes people will think, maybe you guys have felt this way, I, I don't work for a church, so I don't really think of myself as in ministry. Everybody say, nah. Now, maybe you're not in ministry in a vocational, capital in ministry sort of way, but we used to have a teacher at the college that said every baptism is an ordination service. And his point was, the moment you became a part of the family of God, you got enlisted as a worker in God's army. Now, that doesn't mean that we all do the same things, and that doesn't mean that you know, you're not being faithful if you just go to work and do a good job at your job. No, that's worship too. But there's a recognition here that you don't have to have the right title to be a person that takes the gospel to those that don't know it. Can I get an amen? Can we say amen? Second thing I want you to notice is um, that there's some interesting political dimensions in this text. They call Jesus Lord. That's the gospel. The good news of Jesus is Lord. Now, Lord is not just a political term. It's a, what we call a religious term. It's about Jesus being identified with God. But it's not, not a political term. You know what I'm saying? I mean, master, king. It was the, it's a word that Caesar would use to describe himself. Kurios is the word, Lord. Now, I want you to notice something. This is also, um, this is something that I've been thinking about as I've been watching The Chosen. We're all familiar with the idea that Jesus pulled into his group of disciples, people of different political persuasions. Have you guys heard that before? So you've got like Matthew, who was a tax collector. He would have been viewed as a traitor, working together with the Romans. Then you've got Simon the Zealot. who Zealots were people who thought that the best way to be faithful to God was to incite um, rebellion against Rome by using violence. So you think Republicans and Democrats disagree. You know what I'm saying? You've got a zealot and a tax collector, and they're in the same room. I do think that this means that the church should be a place where people of different political persuasions can come together. But it's easy to say that. I'm, also, I'm interested in how does that happen? There are only two ways to pull together people of different political persuasions into one group. One is you are apolitical. You have no, like the group itself has no politics. Two, you have your own politics. I don't think we're allowed to see Jesus as a totally apolitical figure. I think that Jesus has his own politics. Now, that's a big claim, and we could talk about it all day long. What I mean is, Jesus is the king of his own kingdom. And the reason why, the reason why we can have different political persuasions and yet unite as one is not because our differences don't matter. No, they actually do matter. And it's not because when we come to church, we're not at all political. No, we may be setting aside certain aspects of the bipartisan politics of our American context to recognize our greater allegiance to Jesus as King. And once again, I want to acknowledge these are complex things, and I'm not trying to solve problems. I'm just saying we will get to solutions if we remember first and foremost that we worship Jesus as our King. And that means that we're committed to a certain way of organizing the world, a certain way, I should say, organizing our community under the Lordship of our King. The church is a political entity, not like voting this way or that, but a group of people who are gathered together with a common Lord and a common mission. So, first thing I want us to notice is anybody and everybody is called to take the gospel to those that haven't heard it. 
You don't need to be an apostle or a minister or named to do that. Secondly, we worship Jesus as Lord, and that means that our primary allegiance is to him in all areas of our life. And then thirdly, I want you to see that Barnabas' role is one in which most of us can find ourselves. Few of us are going to go down in history. I don't know, none of us are going to probably go down, I don't know what your story is. Maybe you're going to go down in history as some great Christian that changed the world. It's not likely to happen for us. Okay. We're not apostles. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's not our calling. We're not, maybe maybe there's somebody with the gift of prophecy in here, but like if I'm playing the odds, probably not most of us. Most of us are called to a ministry like Barnabas's, where our job is to look around and say, where are some good things happening that I can jump in? Who are some people that need some encouragement that I can come alongside and push toward God's mission and vision for their lives? That's Barnabas. That's us. There's a lot in here for us. Things that we can learn from the in-between times. So those are some of the things that I wanted to draw out from this text, but I'm conscious that I've said a decent bit and I've raised a lot of things that I've not solved per se. So I do want to talk about chapter 12, but let me pause for a moment to give you a chance to maybe think If there's something you want to write down, fine. If you want to look at the text again, great. And then uh, tell me if you have any questions about parts of the text I have covered or parts of the text I have not. They don't put any coffee in here for you, do they? Mm. That's all right. One last drink. Anything? No, ma'am, I'm good. I'm not that spoiled. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, well, let's continue on. And again, sorry if I'm rushing you. I don't don't mean to, but I do want to um, be responsible to my friend Jim and cover the portion of text I told him we'd cover. Chapter 12 is a fun chapter. It's a weird chapter. Um, you got angels in here moving around doing some interesting things. Actually, it provided on the back of your handout. That's actually just for you. I don't anticipate that we'll really have time to get into it. But um, some years ago, actually before I came back to teach at the college, one of my last sermons at the church where I used to serve at was on angels. And so I did a lot of studying angels. It was back in 13. And I kind of just let, produce an outline that um, serves as a general guide to what the Bible says. People, how many of you guys think angels are interesting? They're, they're pretty interesting. How many of you guys think angels are weird? How many of you guys think what we think about angels is weird? How many of you guys remember the show Touched by an Angel? Hmm? Some of you, yeah? Anyway, that's just for you to kind of look through if, uh, if, you, if you're interested in it. Let's read the text with minimal comment, and then I'll break down what we see. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. All right, y'all, I think Luke wants his story to be heard as a story. And sometimes stories are best heard as a story when you have a soundtrack. So we know, like I'm not going to ask you to sing the Imperial March, but we know like there are certain sounds that happen in stories when the, when the bad guy is like flexing his muscles. Dun, 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 right? Can you, give me a, can you give me one of those? Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Some of you didn't, but I'll leave you alone. I'm going to read this verse again. So when I finish verse 1, I would like for you to drop a dun, dun, dun. Okay? It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Dun, dun, dun. It actually is a big deal. So 
We've seen persecution. We've even seen um, martyrdom. You know what we haven't seen? Rome. Like all of the persecution and tension that the church has experienced so far has happened within circles of Judaism. And it's one thing for the high priest and his people to have a problem with you. I mean, you know, just ask Stephen. (laughs) It's a whole other thing if Rome starts to take notice. And so this really is an important moment in the book of Acts when the gospel is now getting big enough to where those who are in real power are starting to push back a little bit. So what happens? He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Is this the first martyrdom? No. Stephen was martyred. What's different about this? Well, I just told you one thing. Rome's the one that does it. King Herod is the king of the Jews, but he's essentially been installed as a puppet king by Rome. What else is different about this martyrdom? Took, yeah, killed him with a sword, which is a Roman way to kill him. What else? One of the original apostles. It's one thing to kill Stephen. Little Stephen. I had you guys say your middle names earlier. My middle name is Stephen, named after the martyr. Thanks, Mama. You know, <laughs> don't know what that means for me. My mom's at the encounter retreat right now, so pray for her. I was named after an angel. Yeah, she was like, Stephen's good for the middle name, but we need to cover that with something. So let's go with the warrior angel, you know. So I guess it balances itself out. I'm either going to fight or die. Maybe both. Um, He has James, the brother of John, the apostle, put to death, okay, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Everybody say, "Uh uh-oh. Now, have you been paying attention to the way in which Peter's story maps onto Jesus' story? I don't know if you've noticed that. Like, Jesus heals a little girl. Peter heals a little girl. Jesus raises a dead guy. Peter raises a dead guy. Jesus heals this woman with his uh, cloak. Peter heals people with his shadow. You guys have been paying attention to some of those connections? You've seen some of those? Like, how did Jesus' story end? At the hands of whom? Uh, yes, together, yeah. So, anyway, what you're supposed to feel here is maybe Peter's about to meet his doom. We'll see. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Dang, that's no joke. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. I want you to notice, you ever pray for big things and then when things actually happen, you're like, whoa, God, I didn't expect you to do that. Just wait, wait till let's see what happens next, later anyway. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Peter finally learned from Jesus that sometimes the most spiritual thing to do is take a nap. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. Get up, Peter, quick! He said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Everybody say, okay. Now, I do think that's what Peter thought. And I do think that that very well articulates precisely what Peter said in the moment. 
But I think what Peter actually probably literally said was, what the? You know, like, he's coming to terms with what's going on. And so then later on, people are like, well, Peter, like, what did you say when you realized it? And Peter's like, well, what I said was, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from Herod's clutches anyway. Yeah. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. Hold on a second. What were they praying for? <laughs> right? Like, you see that. It's silly, huh? I mean, I say it's silly. Guilty, I guess, of the same silliness. They're praying for Peter to be delivered. He's delivered. This little girl shows up and says it, and they tell her she's crazy. Then she kept insisting that it was him, so they said, it must be his angel. Bad theology, by the way. People don't become angels. That's actually one of the reasons, well, this verse is one of the reasons people do. But clearly, like, they weren't thinking clearly. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Sixteen soldiers died that day. And then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre, and Herod did. Sorry, I don't know if I said that right. In my mind, I said Peter. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now they joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blasted, a trust, Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Thank you. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So I, um, I get to teach Acts over at Ozark um, to our freshmen each year. And I used to, when I have time anymore, because whatever. I used to have to do a creative project. And one time this, this young lady did a creative project. She constructed this little throne and then she took like a Ken doll and sat it on the throne. And then she took um, um, like uh, the worms, the like jelly worm, gummy worms, that's what they're called, the gummy worms. And like put them all over there because the worms came out of them and died. One of the more creative projects I've seen. Uh, but it wasn't in the end a uh, Ken doll with some gummy worms. It was a real guy. What the heck's going on here? What's going on here is that the empire strikes back. Do you know why? Because the empire always strikes back. And one of the things about in-between times is that the battle isn't over. The enemy isn't sleeping. And often it's through political power. I'm not against political power. But often it's through leaders who are a little bit too high on themselves and low on the one under whom they reign. On any side of any spectrum. For us, what we need to see is that the in-between times, there are times when the enemy fights back. And yet, what was Peter doing? He's sleeping, just like Jesus in the boat. 
Do you know why? You ever heard somebody say what I said a moment ago? Sometimes the most spiritual thing someone can do is take a nap. Do you know why? Because sleeping, stopping, not flurrying about trying to maneuver everything, is an expression of your confidence in the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God is a biblical term that has two components. One is it means that God will bring about good from bad. But most immediately, sovereign is, a, is another political word. The person in charge. And what you see here is the empire striking back. Herod, this Roman-appointed king of the Jewish people, he puts to death an apostle, and he arrests the leader of the movement. We need to see that suffering and death are a normal expression of faithful discipleship to Jesus. It's how Stephen's story ended. It's how James' story ended. And if Peter's story had ended that way in this occasion, that would not have meant that God was unfaithful. Peter's story is going to end that way eventually. And yet in this moment, what God wanted us to see was not another courageous warrior willing to die for the sake of the king. He wanted us to see that the enemy has a limit. You ever heard, or you ever heard the, Satan described as a lion coming out of 1 Peter? It's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's true, but he's a lion on a leash, the length of which is determined by God. And in this particular case, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. You may recognize that line. It comes from Psalm 2. I don't know if you've spent much time in the Psalms, but as a quick aside, I hope you do. Psalm 1 is very, it's a happy psalm. You know, it's kind of a, kind of a title psalm for the whole book. Happy is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law he meditates day and night. It's great. Tree planted by streams of water, super happy. You know what the second psalm is? The nations rage against the anointed one of God. Like why do we go from happy prayer, looking at a tree, thinking about water, to combat? Because that's the world we live in. And our prayers always happen in the context of a world that's being torn apart. It's not a strange, it's a sad thing that the world's being torn apart. It's not a strange thing that the world's being torn apart. And the parallels to our particular day are quite obvious, I think. Our world's being torn apart. Our children are wondering what the heck's going on. We are wondering what the future holds. And we don't know what the future holds. But we know who holds the future. <laughs> Actually, can I tell you guys a story? Oh, we don't have time for this, but... I didn't mean to say that, and I did, and it made me think of this, and I think I want to share it. So a, a few weeks ago, we had the, like a staff appreciation dinner for all of the staff here at the church. And uh, as elders, we were invited to come and you know, support and celebrate. And, and uh, Mark asked me if I would say a few things at the very end. And I said, sure, no problem. And so I'm asking the Lord, okay, like, well, you know, here's what Mark said. He said, nothing crazy. Just talk about uh, where we've been, who we are as a church, and where we're going in the future. Exactly, exactly. And I started laughing. I was like, how do I know where we're going in the future, you know? And, um, and, and actually, whenever I got the text, we were on our way to La Familia, the restaurant up in Purcell. Yeah, you guys ever been there? So good. And I'm thinking, ooh, I wonder if there's some sort of spiritual analogy to talk about how we're on the way to La Familia. Nope, couldn't figure that out. So I decided in that moment, I'm not going to talk about the future. I'm just going to talk about like, who we are as a church and where we've been. 
And, um, and, but then I'm like, uh, that night I'm thinking about it, and I'm actually kind of laying down, going to bed, and I'm thinking, all right, Lord, I kind of need some hook. I need some way to kind of start this, these comments, just kind of set up why I'm not talking about the future, and why instead I'm going to talk about the, who we are as a church and where we've been. And so I'm like, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray, God, where are we going in the future? And since God never answers that sort of prayer, can I get an amen? Like, it just he's not going to. I'm going to ask him to tell me. And when he says nothing, then I'll start my talk by talking about how I asked and he didn't say anything. So instead, we're going to talk about something else. <laughs> so I have this whole set of, I was tired, by the way. So hopefully you don't, well, if you think less of me, that's okay. Um, so I'm laying there and I'm like, all right, Lord, where are we going in the future? You know, and um, I'm not even kidding you. I, didn't, I never hear an audible voice. So when I say I hear the voice of the Lord, what I, mean that, what I mean by that is sometimes a thought comes into your mind and over time you learn to recognize that it is the voice, the voice, figuratively speaking, of the Lord. And I remember him saying um, real clearly, wherever you're going, I'm already there. And you can trust that the way will be hard but good. Right? And I have to be honest with you, my first thought was, that's awesome. Secondly, I'm going to have to rethink what I'm saying. (laughs) Thirdly, wait a second, God. Did you just say to me that it's okay because we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future? Because it kind of sounds like that's what you said, you know? And I was just laughing, and he was like, you know, you're not as funny as you think, bud. Um, But yes, that is website. So I think about actually this text. I hadn't actually thought about this story, uh, but but that's kind of what we see here a little bit, you know? The church had to come to terms with the fact that God knows what's coming. He's preparing us for it. And in the end, whether or not we lose our heads or are delivered from terrible situations by miracles that even we can't keep up with, God is in control. Politicians cannot stop God. But God can stop politicians if he sees fit. The, the couple of things I, I may want to mention, um, we're kind of, oh, we have, we have enough time. I am going to save some time to stare at you and make you talk to me, though. Um, a historical piece, and then um, a practical piece, and then we'll talk a bit, and then I'll wrap it up with some final thoughts. Historical piece I want to point out. So, you know how in our world we have, like, literary or, or movie tropes, like characters. Okay, let me put it like this. I don't know if you guys have seen the Batman or if you're into Batman movies, but I love Batman, and I got to see it yesterday with my little brother. And um, I'm actually prone to like most Batman. I think Affleck did a fine job. Christian Bale, Batman's those are my favorite movies of all time. Uh, Michael Keaton was great. I mean, Val Kilmer and George Clooney, they did what they could. Anyway, um, we kind of know, you know, that we kind of know what to expect with a Batman character. And so the question is always, you know, what are they going to do with it? And uh, it is good. It's dark. It's a detective story slash psychological thriller slash shot like a slasher movie. It's a fascinating movie. I loved it. Um, although I don't condone violence. Do I need to say that? I don't, I don't think I need to say that. Um, what was this? I know what I was saying. So, but what's interesting about these movies is it's not just the Batman character that we've seen. It's the, we've seen the villains, too. We've seen a bunch of Jokers. We've seen a couple of Penguins, you know. We've seen the Riddler. And so you always wonder, like, well, what are they going to do with the story? Well, in a similar way, although in a more historical sense, Jews in particular had different ways of talking about different types of quote-unquote bad guys, 
And there are a number of stories that they would tell about um, political leaders who kind of set themselves up as God's equal. You're familiar with some of these from the scriptures. And there's this sense in which those that make themselves equal to God will be put to death. I don't know if you think about, but if you think about like um, uh, in Daniel's day, the kings of Babylon. Let me give you some Old Testament texts, just to write down the texts. Ezekiel 28. Uh, Isaiah 14. And Daniel chapter 4. There's this, there's this, this um, tradition, that's the word I'm looking for, in, in Israelite thinking, where, because it actually happened, you'd see this, pagan kings get too big for their britches, God removes them. Josephus, the Jewish historian, talks about this as well. There's a second tradition in Jewish sources, um, in between, like after the Old Testament, so in between the Old and New Testament and during New Testament time, about how when politicians persecute God's people, they die by worms. This is not the only story we have like this. If you've, been, if you've got a really old Bible, or if you grew up Catholic, you have a Bible with the Apocrypha in it. There's a book called Judith in the Apocrypha. There's a story in Judith about this, or a, a, a statement in Judith about politicians dying by worms. There were a couple of other Jewish and then a couple of Christian historians who talked about politicians who persecute the people die by worms. What you have in this story is the coming together of those themes. And the point is just what we've already covered. I just want you to see that there's some masterful um, retelling of what's actually happening. This is about God's sovereignty. I don't know if the next point I want, the next little piece I want to draw. I don't know if this is Luke's specific point, but I I think it's worth thinking about. So there is, like, I mean, there is a medical. I don't know what it's called, but there is like a medical condition. If you have worms and you don't take care of it, literally, eventually, they're going to cause your death. I don't see any need to decide between like biological function and miraculous event. And so it strikes me that this had been happening in Herod's body for some time. And I actually see this as additional evidence of the sovereignty of God. That God knew the moment when Herod was going to accept praise after persecuting his people. And that he set things up in such a way that that also was the moment at which he keeled over dead in a particularly nasty way. Sovereignty. So I told you I wanted to bring out a couple other, um, one other practical point. I'd like for you to write down the phrase, realistic prayer. I want my prayers to be realistic. What does that mean? (laughs) That means my prayers are as big as God. Anything is possible. And it also means my prayers recognize that things don't always work out the way I want. I want to believe that God can spring people out of prison or heal people's cancer or miraculously bring people to the Lord, people to him who, don't, who, who hate him, who are against him in every way. I also want to acknowledge that just because God's capable and I believe it can happen doesn't mean it's going to happen every time. And you know how sometimes in life there's a problem to be, there are problems to be solved? solutions to be worked out, and at other times in life there are tensions to be managed. You know, it's like, how hard do I push my kids? Well, there's not a formula for that. It's a tension to be managed. Hard enough, but not too hard. Not too hard, but hard enough, you know? 
And in prayer, I don't think we're ever going to know the formula. Well, how much should I expect from God? As much as God can do. But don't think that he's going to do things the way you're going to do them. Well, when can I know which one's going to happen? (laughs) Welcome to prayer, you know. And of course, a part of the whole thing is, by prayer, we acknowledge that we're not the ones running the show. And that there is someone who is smarter, stronger, wiser, longer than all of us. And I think it's worth thinking about what we see here in those kinds of terms. Okay, um, we have, I, I was told that 1020, we need to get out of here. And I really only need like 30 seconds to a minute to um, just draw everything together and make sure that we're capturing what Luke is telling us here in this in-between season. So that gives us 10 minutes to talk. So breathe, bounce your shoulders a little bit, get that blood flowing. We hear some necks cracking. And uh, what, um, what questions do you have? Thoughts are welcome too. But questions in particular would be beneficial for us to clarify some things. Yeah. Um, verse 3 was interestingly significant. Of chapter 12? Uh, in chapter 12, uh, we saw that this um, met with approval yeah. of the Jews. He proceeded to seize Peter. Mm-hmm. What if the Jews didn't react differently? How would that have changed things? It's a good question. And um, I, I think that there is, here's, you know, of course, we have to remember, and I know you know this, we have to remember that pretty much everybody in the story, almost everybody in the story at this point, are Jewish, including Peter. And so what you have here is a divide within Israel. And in the story of Acts, the phrase, the Jews, which, of course, we need to be careful about just because of how history has gone. You're starting to have a separation here between those who belong to the people of Israel but reject Jesus as Messiah and those who... Uh, belong to the people of Israel and receive Jesus as Messiah. And the tension is growing. And actually, um, you guys talked about Ananias and Sapphira being put to death, right? A few times ago? Not if you remember that. I think the whole point of that story is that the church is the new temple of the living God. Because there's been tension between the apostles and the leaders of the Jerusalem temple. Anyway, here you have that continuing ongoing tension. And in Herod's case... Yes, he is being presented as a king who is not a man of principle, but is merely drawn by what is popular. Yeah. You, you said politics, I'm going, that's, that's the example. There is a, it's, it's, it is. Check the pulse of everybody and then I'll, I'll leave court. There is absolutely a criticism there of, of, that you're seeing that politicians, and I don't want to, I say politicians as if it's a monolithic category. It's of course not. You know, Lynn Ragsdale for mayor, you know, I don't know, whatever. Um, if I've, I've thought about, what if my children want to get into politics? I'm going to tell them to be senators. Don't try to be the president. But still, um, it's hard to be a principled person and to get things done. But that's, I think, the criticism here is that he was driven by popularity, not principled. And that's probably part of why, in the end, he got a little too big for his britches, or is at least related to it. Yeah. What else you guys see? Yes, sir. Yeah. You got moments in between the markers. Is, is that kind of like in 11, 27 to the end, where it talks about the yes. famine and everything? Yeah. Is, is there a reason why that's kind of just tucked in there? It's a good question. Um, there, I think there is a reason why it's tucked in there. And the, the main reason within the story of Acts is it shows, it can, it, it, it um, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess corroborate? I don't know. It adds to the picture of unity between the two. So here you have somebody showing up talking about these, uh, the trouble that's happening in Jerusalem. 
And the Claudius piece is mentioned because actually during Claudius's reign, there were a number of food shortages. And so it's kind of historic. I mean, it's, I think, Luke saying, just so you all know, I'm actually paying attention to history, you know. But you have Agabus showing up, talking about this in Antioch, and the church in Antioch does not say, well, that's their problem, let them deal with it. They do not say, we're just going to take care of our own people. What they instead say is, we are, we are going to do what we can to help. And so they send this gift through the elders, that's actually another point of significance, back to Jerusalem. So the primary thing you have going on here is to show the unity between the churches. I think there's a secondary point that actually shows the ascendance of the elders as playing a key role in leading churches once the apostles leave. Unity is the big piece. And you think about it in our context today. You know, we actually had to decide a couple of weeks ago um, about this, the trip, the Poland trip that we had planned. Our student ministers, God bless our student ministers. We have a wonderful team. They were like, man, like, what is the church if not for times like this? And we were like, amen, but you can't take people's kids, you know? <laughs> um, and, but that heart, their heart was so rich and right. You know, you think about the, the, the immigrants who've come to our community. I know these are, these are contested issues, and I recognize that there's, there are real political complications in some of these various things. There are reasons to, um, there's a reason, well, you don't need my politics. I think what we see here is that, to keep it tight, when Christians in one place become aware of needs of their brothers and sisters in another place, the impulse is, what can we do to maintain unity and show some love? Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you pointed that part out. That's an important thing, I think. Any connection between that famine and Joseph in Egypt? Um, I'd have to think about that. So a lot of times the way the Bible works is you have stories on stories on stories. And so I do think that um, Peter's story is being presented as like you could almost lay it over top of Jesus' story. And so in this case, you'd have like an echo, you know, so like when you, my supervisor, uh, so I'm not teaching at the college this semester. I'm on writing, I'm on research leave, which has been really fun. So I don't actually get to do this a lot. So thanks for letting me come teach you guys. Um, but I do get to introvert all day and just research, which is amazing. Anyway, my supervisor says that when you think about the biblical story, one of his images for it is you imagine a staircase, a spiral staircase. And as you go up the staircase, you can, you can lean over and look back down any one part of it. And you see that like same, what it would be, axis, various points on the staircase. And he says, that's kind of how the biblical stories work, is you can kind of draw a thread. And so there may be some ways in which this is kind of reaching through from the story of Peter and the church, reaching through the story of Jesus, back to the story of Exodus. So... Potentially, especially given the role of some angels in leading them into the promised land. I would have to think about it, though. Yeah. That was a, that's a good question. Yes, ma'am. Um, could you just give a short commentary on Herod and, um, you know, being in a demand and all of that? Like, what was the purpose of Herod's visit? Because it's Absolutely. So the Herods are, I mean, it's like a soap opera. It's like a political family soap opera. So um, Herod, the, you, you, you may have noticed that you see the word King Herod or Herod multiple times in the Gospels and the book of Acts. You actually meet multiple Herods 
in the book of Acts. You're going to meet this guy's son later on in uh, chapter 26. And so you have King Herod who is called king because the Romans decided he would be king. Let me back up a little bit. Okay, so starting in the 8th century BC, the land of Israel has been ruled by somebody other than themselves. First it was Assyria who came in and took over in 722 BC. Then around 587 BC, Babylon comes in and takes over. So their timeline is one of subjugation. You have Assyria, then you have Babylon, and then after that you'd have uh, Persia, and then you'd have Greece, and then there was this time period where um, it was right around like the 200s where this pagan king comes in, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, and he hangs this pagan symbol in Jerusalem and he's forcing all of the Jews to burn incense to false gods. And this one family eventually is like, enough, we're not taking it. And so this guy kills the pagan soldier and he kills the Jews who are actually burning incense to these pagan gods. And then they run off into the mountains and they start this big rebellion. It's a family called the Maccabees. The Maccabean revolt is actually where the Jewish festival of Hanukkah comes from. And so they, long story short, establish a period of independence where the Jews actually get to run themselves. And so for about a century, from 167-ish to about 63 BC, the Jewish people get to rule over their own territory. But things aren't as good as they'd hoped because as often that happens, you know, the rebels get in power and then they start to look like those who they replaced and so on and so forth. Meanwhile, around this time, this is when Rome is starting to take over and really establish what we come to know as the Roman Empire. And so they send the general Pompey in to Jerusalem in 63 BC, and that's when he takes over. So the Romans now are the ones who are ruling over Jerusalem. And they try various forms of government, and eventually what they decide is they need to install a king who serves the Romans, but is a king of the Jews, and so they pick this man Herod. The original Herod began reigning in 37 BC, and he reigned up through 4 AD. So that'd be the one that put Jesus to death. And he's threatened by these prophecies about this king of the Jews, because he wants to be the king of the Jews, but the Jews don't really like him. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It would be like, pick your foreign superpower. I don't know if I want, I mean, everything is political right now, but let's just say, let's say Russia takes over the world or China takes over the world, or whoever takes over the world, and then they remove our president, and then they install a president that we didn't elect, but they installed. We're, that's not our president, you know? And so there's you be like, that's not our king. And so there was tension. So King Herod was always killing everybody because he was worried about people uh, messing with his throne. Now here you're a generation down. That Herod had multiple other sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and um, I can't even remember the name of the, uh, some of the other ones. And then this is one of those sons... So this guy would be uh, related to the one that killed John the Baptist, and now he's the one who kills James, and then he has sons who show up later in the story. So I would, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm foggy on some of the um, family tree details because the family tree is a mess. But if you literally Google Herod family tree, uh, just Google it. You'll find some good images that lay it all out. But that's the, yeah, that's the Herod family. And so that's what this guy is a part of, this group of leaders who are trying to establish rule but they know that nobody really likes them, and so they essentially just kill everybody who gets in the way. Yeah, good question. All right, I think we probably need to move toward a close, so let me say that I think, um, hmm, 
I think that the primary point of this story is nothing can stop the gospel because nothing can stop God. Put maybe a different way, the mission marches on. So you may remember there's an important verse in Acts chapter 1. This is where Luke is telling us about the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus. And, um, and the, they actually ask him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says to them, it is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Do you know what he says next? In Jerusalem? Judea and Samaria? And the ends, to the ends of the earth. So the church in Acts hangs around Jerusalem for the first seven chapters. And the gospel takes root. Then through a persecution it spreads throughout Judea and Samaria. And then starting in chapter 13, the Spirit sends Barnabas and Saul. And this starts the march of the gospel toward Rome. Of course, because all roads lead to Rome, all roads come from Rome. Once you hit Rome, you've hit the ends of the earth. So what we see here is we actually have come to the end of an important transitional section in the book of Acts. The gospel has indeed done precisely what God said it would do, what Jesus said it would do. It has taken root and been witnessed to in Judea and Samaria, and it is time to expand from here. Now, this is, of course, a historical moment that's unrepeatable, but it's matched by the moments in which we find ourselves. The gospel has taken root in you. There were any number of barriers that could have hindered the gospel from taking root in you. Barriers inside you and barriers around you, but it didn't work because nothing can stop the gospel because nothing can stop God. And so the question now is, where to next? And that may be the routine. That may be a break in the routine. Doesn't matter. What matters is that you open yourself up to the power of God moving in and through you, in and through us. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the opportunity for us to gather together around your word. Pray that you bless our memories and our minds and hearts and lives as we think about and take to heart and practice the things that we've learned. I pray that you continue to bless this class as they keep working through the book of Acts. Bless Jim as he's away this weekend. So thankful for his ministry here and in other places. And um, yeah, give us joy. Give us, give us you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.